bringing you around the world right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Have you ever wished that you could reinvent yourself? Well, uh, perhaps you are over 40 and you think that it's too late. (laughs) Whatever you are now, you're stuck with it. That's not the case. That's not the case no matter what age you are, actually. It's never too early or too late to reinvent yourself. And my guest today is going to tell you how. His name is Peter Fogel. You may uh, have seen him live in comedy clubs or on television. Um, He's been in numerous theaters, live performances, uh, comedy clubs, cruise ships, Las Vegas theaters. He's opened for such stars as Rita Rudner, Jimmy J.J. Walker, and Robert Wool. And he's also shared the stage or worked with Jason Bateman, Ed Asner, Shirley Jones, Robin Williams, Harry Anderson, Ray Romano, and John Stewart. And uh, he has some other credits, too. But right now, the credit that uh, is his most current, because he has reinvented himself, is a book that he's written called If Not Now, Then When? Stories and Strategies of People Over 40 Who Have Successfully Reinvented Themselves. And I think what makes this particularly interesting is the fact that he actually walks his talk. He has done it to himself, and that's what we'll start out with. Asking him, you kind of wonder if he's been on all of these uh, shows. I haven't even, I mean, I've just scratched the surface telling you about the things that he's done. But if he was a successful comedian, a stand-up comic, how come he had to reinvent himself? That would be the first question I would think people want to know. So let's get to it, Peter. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm laying down now. Okay, good. <laughs> Just like it would be on the couch. I'm, I'm laying yes, down. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, so let you think you're laughing now, but... <laughs> do people do that still? I guess uh, because when I went to my therapist, I was sitting upright in a chair, but do people still do you, people still do the sleeping on the, laying on the couch? The sleeping on the couch. No, I mean, yes, or right. napping, you know. Um, I, yes, there are actually psychoanalysts who see people three to five times a week, and the people actually lay down still on the analytic couch. You think the psychiatrist, after hearing the same problems from the same people for four or five times a week, would like to be laying down and have them sitting in the chair <laughs> because they need a break? Well, <laughs> sometimes they do. But um, actually, even that kind of therapy, psychoanalytically oriented oh. psychotherapy, can also, I mean, not real psychoanalysis, that's laying down, but psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapy is, is done all over the place, and that's sitting up and, and not quite as intense. But okay. let's get, <laughs> I gather that you haven't been in either. <laughs> no, what, in the deep, deep one? The well, deep, deep psychoanalysis? Yes. Or because that's every comedian's fear. You see, once you understand what makes, if you become completely normal, and this I'm talking from truth, from real yes. truth, once you become really normal and things don't bother you as much, comedians have a fear of losing their sense of humor. Yes. If we get completely sane and, and lose our, any of our neuroses, we're, we're, we feel we're going to lose our mojo because it's the things that upset us that we t- 
turn from a negative into a positive on stage pre- presenting to an audience so they can laugh at the same trials and tribulations that I'm going through. Yes, yes. And what were some of the, the main themes that you would do that with? Uh, mostly my social love life. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I, I, took, I took the pain for my life, my, my, my love life, uh, because for a good part of my life, women were not really attracted to men in unstable professions for long-term relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were gone for a week, I'd come back and they go, you know, your lifestyle's not right for me. I, I've been gone for a week. Well, what was the deal? I mean, there was, I, I, I wasn't in the merchant marine. I didn't travel off to another country. I was in Ohio. Why are you holding that against me? So getting back to what you're talking about, the reinvention, your needs in your 20s, are different as your needs in your 30s, and as you hit over 40, as you probably know, Dr. Carroll, things change because it's the half point life of of your of your life and your and your professional life. So you 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 know, it, it's it's would be great if we knew what we knew in our 40s, what we you know could, would have known in our 20s, right? So your question is is why was I so successful? Because I basically was tired of the travel the uncertainty, the instability, and, of course, there's ageism in the show business world. In Hollywood, uh, once you get to a certain age, if you haven't reached that plateau of what they expect of you, they go on to the next person. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. For every Ray Romano who I came up in the ranks with, there are thousands of me. Good, Uh strong, working comics making a living. But then again, I'm getting older. My audiences were getting younger. Does that make sense? My reference level was changing for people in their 20s. I, what I was talking to people in the 20s when I was 20s is different when you're in, in your 40s, even though I look tremendous and I still look like I'm in 30s, talking to these people that are in their 20s, they can't really relate to high school reunions mm. because they're just out of high school. Mm, uh-huh. So you, you grow up in a way, you know, and, I, and I'm working with kids on the road or in comedy clubs that could be my child. And it was just, your needs change and you want more of a, of, you don't want, people to dictate what you can do, and I wanted to get into a profession where I had more control, and that's, uh, oh, that is what was my, uh, the theme throughout my book, is having control over your life, not being told what to do, not to meet anybody else's expectations except your own at this time in your life. Well, did you at some time, are you married? No. Um, because I was thinking, you know, whether that had, you, you said a lot, the theme, the main theme of your of your comedy was your love life, so I was thinking that if you settled down, did, did you? Well, I guess did you settle down with one woman because then you'd have less material. <laughs> yeah, that was scary. I said I couldn't possibly. I mean, I, I would think, my God, if I'm completely happy, or the where's this going to go? I'm, I need, I need food for the fodder. I, I need ammunition. So, women, to give you an idea, do you, do you, do you want an example? Sure. Can I give you an example? Absolutely. Okay. Now I lived in New York. I lived in the, I live in Florida now, but this is a perfect example of where I get my humor. I'm talking to a woman on through internet dating, which is a whole nother show for you and I to do. <laughs> yes. But people basically put up a profile and a picture, and it's an ad for your life. Remember, in the old days when we didn't have the internet, you did you, you know you had the ads in the newspapers right. and the, you know the little freebie newspapers. But the internet changed everything. Now you can be who you want to be. That's what people write profiles of who they want to be. I don't think it's truly who they are. It's who they want to show to the world who they are. So in New York, and if anyone's here listening from New York, if you live in the outer boroughs, that is a no-no for someone who's a Manhattan woman, let's say. Right. It's, It's... 
I was talking, now I put New York. I didn't say I was in Queens, which is only, you know, not far from Manhattan. But I, when I moved back from California to, to Queens, I wanted a car. I wanted a large, you know, a bedroom apartment to do my, my business. And I didn't want to live in a shoebox in Manhattan. But that was my decision. So I didn't know that there was a, a hierarchy from Manhattan to Queens. I had an idea. But after a while, I, so finally I want to add, I put, I put Dr. Carroll, uh, New York. And I wrote Tree Line Street. So girls call me in the phone and goes, where's there a Tree Line Street with no alternate <laughs> side of the street parking? It was Because there's no alternate, there is no non-alternate side of the street parking in Manhattan. I said, well, I, I have to tell you the truth. Uh, and we're, now, prior to this, we were having a 30-second conversation where we were clicking. When I told her I lived in Queens, mm. her whole demeanor changed. I might as well have said I was Al-Qaeda or did public relations for the Taliban on the weekend. Right. Like, like, like I had a prison record. She says, well, I, I can't possibly go out with someone who lives in, who's yeah. from Queens. I go, no, I, I just live in Queens. I, I'm back from L.A., and this is where I, I moved. She goes, I, I, you're probably a great guy, but I, I just can't possibly do this. It, it, it's not you, it's me. I, and I go, surely it's you, it's not me. <laughs> and then she, it, now here's the fun, here was the humor came part, and I hope you're not thinking I'm judging someone, but she had no job and was homeless. She was in between work, and she was uh, living with friends. And it was she like wanted the, to live in Manhattan. She was looking for a guy who yeah, lived in Manhattan. So that's she right. With him. To save her. So she, so she says, I know it's kind of weird. I don't have a home to stay in, and I'm unemployed, and I don't want to go out with someone who, who has a career. And, and it was yeah. like that Seinfeld episode where the girl said to Jerry, I don't think you're funny. And he goes, well, you're a cashier. So, <laughs> so when I'm talking to her, she goes, you're going to use this in your comedy club act, aren't you? I go, Absolutely. How can I not? She was, you know, and and then she found me in Florida again on the same internet internet set and I, internet internet set and I had to remind her of she forgot that even uh, though she looked at the picture she forgot it was me, and and that's where I found the humor in my life. That's what I put into my writing, uh -huh. and I take a negative and turned it into a positive. Being that I'm in a new career and I'm a copywriter and I'm a reinvention expert, I still am not stop being funny. I try to help people overcome certain obstacles using the power of humor because it's really a great equalizer, and I'm sure you know that. Okay, so there you were. You just were starting to tell us that you, you were feeling this um, age growing up becoming a problem. And, um, because you get to a certain age. You, 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 I always tell people when you get to that over 40 age, you've got to realize you know, when you're in your 20s, you don't think where you're going to be in your 30s or you're going to be in your 40s. But when you're in your 40s, you have to think, well, where am I going to be in 10 years? What up, can I continue to do this where the money has depleted a lot? My audiences are getting sh uh, smaller. The work is not as plentiful because it was, you know, the comedy clubs had dried up in the 80s and 90s. So where am I going to be in my 40s and 50s? I can't keep doing this. And I think most people who look at their own professions, Dr. Carroll, going, can I continue to do this with this travel that has changed? My market has changed for lower money and struggling to get the work that used to be there that doesn't exist anymore. You know, but in, in um, some of the material that I read of yours, um, you know, mostly you're addressing yourself to people who are not happy anymore in their career and they're looking for a new, um, uh, to reinvent themselves, to do something that they enjoy more. I mean, it was kind of a different situation for you because you would have liked to have continued doing... I, I don't know. That's a, that's a very interesting question, uh, statement, actually, to say. You know, you know, they say it's the journey, not, not the destination. Right. When you've been in show business for over 25 years, I assure you, it is the destination. You don't want to be running on planes. 
missing flights, you know, being on red eyes and traveling and traveling and and realize that you, you don't really want to do what you did. In your 20s, it's fun. It's an adventure. But when you get a little older, you go, you know, this is a grind. Mm-hmm. So the, the the joy I enjoyed, the joy I had was actually performing on stage at the destination. It was just getting there after 25 years was just taking a toll. And I realized uh-huh. I, I wanted to have stability in my personal life. And it was always very difficult as a comedian traveling um, to, to get that. Yes, I can... Uh... I can see that. <laughs> the fun part is performing. It's just getting to that that position is right. difficult because it just came, became harder and harder. I mean, imagine working now for what you got paid in 1984. That's what is basically. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, the joy goes out of anybody's business if you don't think you're being paid what you're worth. Yes. Does that make yes. sense? Yes, absolutely. Okay, well, we're um, going to be taking a break now, but when we come back, um, perhaps you can tell us, how you got from that point um, to where you're realizing all of this uh, to reinventing yourself since you didn't have a book like the one that you wrote to help you. When we come back, we'll continue talking with my guest, Peter Fogel, and uh, talking about how you can reinvent yourself, as he did. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a twig set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelled a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors cried the second. I hope it had the bathroom, cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org. And from energyhog.org, she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Invoke thought, feeling, and inspiration into your life right here on voiceamerica.com. Expand love and light in the universe. Tune into Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True with Iris Jackson every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Each week, Iris and her guests empower, encourage, affirm, acknowledge, and remind us of who we really are, providing tools and processes to fulfill our destiny passionately, victoriously, and joyously. Miracles Happen, Dreams Do Come True is under the guidance and direction of our beloved I Am Presence, the seven mighty Elohim, the ascended masters, and the legions of light, and is given Given with fervent and heartfelt wishes that all of your dreams come true and are a thousand times more wonderful than you ever dreamed possible. 
the powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today on my couch is Peter Fogel. He is one of America's funniest comedians, and as you can tell by listening to the first quarter of the show, he is. <laughs> he's, uh, and now he's going to be telling us how he went from um, his work as a comedian to the author of a new book called If Not Now, Then When, Stories and Strategies of People Over 40 who have successfully reinvented themselves, and that's what we're talking about today. I would just want to mention, um, amongst some of your, you have such a long list of credits, but um, one, some of the things that he has done, um, he's worked as a studio audience warm-up, meaning that that's someone who goes out into the audience before the show, in between uh, takes of the show, to get the audience laughing, so that when the show starts, People really actually do laugh at what's going on in the show. They get into a, a mood. And some of the shows that he's worked on are Whoopi, Hope and Faith, Married with Children, Men Behaving Badly, Unhappily Ever After, and The Howie Mandel Show. And uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to comment on what it was that you yeah, did. That was... Uh... I was a plate spinner. See, people watch sitcoms. They think it's done in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's eight hours. Right. I'm entertaining an audience between takes for about five to eight hours, depending. Married with Children was always one of my favorites because it was very quick, and it was a, a taped show with not as many cameras. So it was like an hour and a half, break for dinner, do a second show, hour and a half, we're out of there. Some shows could go five to eight, and if it's a difficult taping, I have to entertain people for eight hours. I'm, I'm like, they're, I'm their... I'm their priest, their rabbi, their psychiatrist. I'm entertaining them. I'm giving. I'm making them laugh, getting them involved in the show, and that was probably the most stressful thing in um, uh, in show business I had to do because you know it, it was a very high paid position, but so much pressure on you. If the audience, if they're not laughing at the show, they think it's the warm up. Yes. I mean, I've once, I, as you probably read in the book, I actually had to make drug rehab people, mm-hmm. uh, gang gang members, laugh during a taping of a Debbie Mazur pilot. And I remember they, they were very difficult. I mean, these were people that were told you can go to drug rehab or go to prison. They picked drug rehab. They bust them into that show. And the producer brings me over to the, to the side of the stage and goes, why aren't these people laughing? <laughs> I go, uh, maybe because uh, I'm a law-abiding citizen and they're gangbangers. You know? <laughs> so I'm, it's in the book. I describe what happened. But that was the pressure. I mean, they're paying me a lot of money. So you learn to adapt to your situation. But... Getting back to, I think, were we talking about why right. I decided... How you left being, how you I left doing it, this it, wonderful job it, to it, uh, it, it, reinvent yourself. You know, Dr. Carroll, as I'm sure you know, the grass is always greener in the other side. People think what you do is, oh, God, that's so much fun. If you knew how hard it was, you mm-hmm. wouldn't be saying that. To, to do seven hours and not knowing that they're going to hire you back next week to do it because mm-hmm. one producer didn't like the joke you did, it's it, it, you can't deal with that pressure. Oh, it looks like fun. Trust me, it's not as much fun right, as you think right. it is. You get paid, and I'm sure people that are listening, I know what, the, and I know they're out there. You're getting paid a lot of money for a job that you're doing for maybe the 15, 20 years, and it just is getting to you to the point where it's affecting your health, 
and your outlook in life, and you go, God, I got, I'm being paid so much money. Why aren't I enjoying this? Because you just don't know when it's going to end, or they're going to find out, or you know, you, you're scheduled to do like 12 shows for like three thousand dollars a pop, working, you know, like five hours a week, and then they realize we're not hiring you back for the rest of the season. I mean, it was just, it was just too much. Yeah. So when I, when I moved back to New York from um, California, uh, I had a breakup with my writing partner. I had a writing career. I was writing for international television. And I realized, I, I, I then decided I wanted to get into something that would, I would be in demand, I'd be paid what I'm worth or more, and I can make my own hours. Because being that I was a comic for 25 years, I really never held a job. I was always freelancing. Mm-hmm. I couldn't be 9 to 5. So I was doing direct response copywriting. I was getting clients. I learned another skill. I became more in demand, more in demand. And all during this time, I was going to therapy because I was making the transition from the old Peter to the new Peter. And my therapist actually says, why don't you write a book on reinvention? I go, hmm. who would buy a book from me? He says, you're, you're an intelligent man. You write well. You're, you're very funny. You're creative. And I went, you think anyone would buy that? Anyone would listen to me? And then I, because I, as I was doing the reinvention, I was trying to figure out whether other people in my, at my level, over 40, not a lot over 40, but over 40, who are thinking of switching careers. I'm sure there are people that have reinvented themselves. I want to hear what they have to say about it. Yes. So I try to get different walks of life of people that have changed careers. And, and I realized there was a lot of six degrees of separation. A lot of people were going through the same thing throughout their own personal and professional life that I felt saw was very interesting. So I let the folks in, my, in the book tell the story. But it's just so interesting to hear where people what their goals in life, aspirations were in their 20s. Because we all have those little dreams, you know, the getting married, have the white picket fence, or, you know, get married, have the kids, the car, live in the suburbs, or you want to, you know, we, uh, my generation, Ray, we all want to have sitcoms, be on television, which I did a lot of. But, you know, Ray hit the mother load uh, to getting his own series. But I wanted to hear where, where, what people if they fulfilled their own aspirations in their 20s and 30s and now in their 40s. And I realized a lot of people were, were doing their professions or were scared of changing their careers because of what they thought their family would say or their parents mm. would say. How do you like that? People in their 50s are still concerned of what mommy's going to say if I switch careers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that amazing? Yeah. Just It blew my mind. With, like People who are successful, they're 52, 53, God, what is my mother going to say if she knows I'm leaving this well-paid job? Mm-hmm. I think we're all children to an extent, to our yes. parents still. Yes. Okay. Because we're always living. I think the main thing, Dr. Carroll, is people are living off other people's expectations of them. Yeah. And you get caught in that rut, though. I, I'll disappoint people if I change. Yes. And you get to a point where you realize, hey, it's about you now. Okay. So then you... Then I, <laughs> then I switched... To, you know, I was getting full-time work as a copywriter. I realized I created a niche for myself. I was in but demand. But you kind of left, okay, but you sort of made a leap without really, I mean, so how did you, besides going to therapy, which obviously was a very wise thing for you to do, um, how did you make that leap from from deciding that you were going to change uh, from being a comedian to, to being a copywriter? Um. Well, was it I, in therapy that you discussed? No, no, I was doing copywriting before that. He was being a little negative with me, my therapist, actually going, you know, I heard, you know, people don't make that much money. Are you sure you're making doing the right thing? Because I was, I was doing, I was, you know, I was going from the, the um, what is it, the moth into the butterfly. 
and oh, things were going okay. well, but he didn't want me to get too excited. He goes, you know, I heard, you know, the freelance world is difficult. I go, no, you can you can earn a good living at this. I'm enjoying it. It, it meets my requirements. I do have a writing background. It won't be like I'm going to med school here. Right. And he was being kind of like devil's advocate for me, but I, he says, I don't want you to look at this through rose-colored glasses. I go, hey, it's my life. I mean, I, you know, it was, he meant the wealth for me, but I, I realized that I was still doing my stand-up comedy while I was making the transition. So I wasn't giving mm-hmm. up my day job. I was, mm-hmm. don't forget, I had my day, as a comic, you work an hour a night or 40 minutes. During the day, you have nine hours. Mm. So I was... I'm used to multitasking, and I'm very self-motivated and tenacious. So the transition wasn't that hard because I've, like I said, like I said, I've never held a nine-to-five job. So I had more than enough time to cultivate my skill levels to get it up to proficient enough to be hired by clients for a lot of money. And I also had a mentor that helped me. So I had a support group that was helping me. But but what made you? I mean, how did you have this epiphany that one day, or or is that how it happened? That you went from that you switched and, well, and to what? I mean, do you know what I mean? How did you? What What was the final thing that that pushed you over? Um, well, I was when I was in L.A. I, I got a letter in the mail called, "Can you write a letter like this? If you can, you could be in demand." Hmm. Uh, just like that old thing, "Can you draw Winky the Clown?" Remember those? In the, in, you know, if you want to, if you send away to an art school. Can you, draw, can you draw the pirate? If you can, you may be in, admitted into our art school. Yeah. Well, this was a correspondence course for copywriting, and I went, I could write a letter like this. I could learn to do this. Huh. And, and then I saw the money they were making and, and the background, and I said, hmm, this fits my lifestyle, because I was not going to get a job. I just wanted to be something where I could be used to the lifestyle I was, making my own hours in command of my own, you know, my own time, but be paid a lot of money for something that I would be in demand for. And... Of this, and not having to reinvent myself to the point where I had to go, like, learn refrigerator repair. I was a writer already. So I, I wrote the letter. I, you know, I, I, I took the correspondence course, and then to give you an idea what happened. Now, if you want to talk about 2001, uh-huh. you know, the 9-11 thing, right. this was the real epiphany that I knew that I could do this full time. 9-11 happened. Two weeks later was a boot camp for the correspondence school for the copywriters. Yes. Yeah. Exactly a week later, a week later, the correspondent was in, it was in my, it was down in Florida where I live now, and I said, you know what, I'm so into this, I'm gonna go to that boot camp, and I'm gonna meet the people that created this course, I'll make, I'll network, I'll meet people. Well, 9-11 happened, and it was about, supposed to be about 73 people to show up at the, at, at the, um, at the boot camp. Mm-hmm. Well, you know who showed up there after 9-11? 32 people showed up. Mm-hmm. They were just so scared of flying. I realized, this is the best time to fly. It's going to be safer than anything, which it was. There were four people on my flight down to Florida in the morning yeah. on the 18th. So I yeah. went down there. They made an offer to all the students. They said, we want someone to beat the control. The control in a letter in direct, direct mail copywriting. And if people are wondering what direct mail copywriting is, every time you get an offer in the mail for a nutraceutical, for a, um, vitamins or um, you know pain relief or... A real estate or financial newsletters, copywriters write that. That's what I do. So we're looking for someone to beat the control. The control is something that makes money for the company. It brings a lot of money in. And I said to myself, I'm going to beat that control. I'm going to write that letter. I'm going to beat the, you know, I'm going to, they said, anyone who gets it is going to get a, you know, X amount of dollars in royalties. Well, guess what? Two of us went home, wrote the, the outline for the letter, submitted it. 
and I had a 50% chance of getting it, and I was picked. So huh. I wrote the letter. I had some. I had help with people that were helping me with the letter with the company. It beat the control. I then went on to make over thirty thousand dollars in royalties um, because I stepped up. You know what Woody Allen says: half a life is like ninety percent showing up. Right. I was the only one. Me and this other one were the only ones to actually take them up on that offer of beating the control. And because I stepped up and took action. I made thirty thousand dollars in royalties, and my career was, you know, like jump, you know, turbocharged. People, I was in demand because of a decision I made. So after that was the big epiphany, going, okay, I made the right decision because I stepped up to the plate, I answered the call, I took action. Before that, I was kind of like scared. Am I making the wrong decision? But I call that in my book the defining moment when you really knew, okay, now I know I'm supposed to be doing this. Yeah. So that was the epiphany where I knew that I was onto something. <laughs> Perfect timing. Um, well, that you know, and, and when you say that uh, you got that in the mail, I mean, I guess, I guess before that, it, you were beginning to open yourself up to the possibilities of doing something else. And then, I mean, if that letter had reached you maybe five years earlier, or probably letters like that had, but um, you know, you might not have followed through with it. But now you were ready for a change, yeah. so you yeah. were open to something that the universe brought to you. Actually, I knew I was moving back to New York, and when I got the letter, I put it in my drawer for like three months. I go, I'm going to be getting this. It's just not right time at this moment because I have to move back, and I was doing some other things. But yeah. um, you're right. If I got it five, you never know. You right. never know. Okay, well, when we come back, we'll talk more about reinventing yourself with my guest, Peter Fogel. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race star. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture, who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time to Jeffrey Gitterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. This week on Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo, Lake Bell from Surface joins us to tell us about the show, and TD-0013, our resident stormtrooper, joins us in studio to help us talk about the sci-fi that's happened this week. That's this week on Slice of Sci-Fi with Michael and Evo. Bringing you around the world, right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking with Peter Fogel. He is the author of a book called If Not Now, Then When? Stories and Strategies of People Over 40 Who Have Successfully Reinvented Themselves. And we've just been learning how he managed to do that. Is that title long enough, Dr. Kelly? Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I know, very catchy. <laughs> it, it, but I, you think, if not now, then when? Actually, it's from the Talmud, as you probably know. It's, it's a... Um, it was. Um, I didn't realize it until I came uh, when I decided on it. But um, no one could say, "Well, what's your book about?" I, I think it pretty much <laughs> in the title, which is like four pages. You know. Right. Um. And by the way, let me uh, give some of the other credits that uh, I'm doing this little by little here because there's so many of them. Um, Peter Fogel, you may know him from uh, his having been um, in a number of commercials, or I guess that's what you meant when you say that you've been hawking products on TV. Yeah. He was the ring around the collar man, if you uh, remember that. And um, he's also hawked products for a Mazda, American Express, and whisk detergent. Well, whisk was ring, ring around the collar. Was ring around the collar, yes. yes. I was the ring around the collar man 20 years ago. <laughs> 20 years ago, uh, last month, I was the ring around the collar man. <laughs> Had a filthy neck. <laughs> I played a comic. I played. Surprisingly enough, I played a comic on in a comedy club in a t- with a woman who said, uh, "I said your timing is off." She goes, "Well, you have ring around the collar." I go, "Oh, now you're being funny." It's. it's I still have the commercial. I huh. mean, well, that was a very yes. It was a very popular commercial. Absolutely. Um, well, we're, we just left off the story where you uh, discovered that in fact you had made the right cho- choice in uh, reinventing yourself as a copywriter. And um, you were starting to tell us before about how your therapist had suggested that you write a book um, about this, about what you did. And tell us about how you, you know, what people you, you got for your book. I know you, you found someone from The Sopranos, for example, and these were people you all knew, I, I gather. Well, yeah. Steve Sharippa uh, was the bouncer at the Riviera Com- bouncer slash maitre d' at the Riviera Comedy Club in Las Vegas who used to book me, Ray Romano, Paulie Shore, Kevin James, Rita Rudna, Jimmy Walker, at the comedy club. And then he um, he was never happy being the ma- You know, he did the matri. Then he got bumped up to the en- entertainment director. So he was in charge of booking the whole casino. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't very happy doing that. He was always having to solve problems. But all, you know, and, you know, he's not a, I wouldn't say he's the most people person oriented you know and people are always he was a problem solver i called him like macgyver people always coming in he had to put out fires dealing with huge egos and major stars that were playing at, at the riviera mm. and but during this time he was friends with a lot of uh comedian actors like um uh drew carey who would put him in short little films along the way and all during this time don't forget this is a man who had you know uh, limited college education two-year college or something you know he was a blue collar from brooklyn um you know, he was always working in the nightclub area, but he was always doing these little short films, and he was getting the acting bug. And I just thought if Steve would be an interesting guy, a man who came from humble beginnings, who really was given an opportunity and grabbed it and just reinvented himself into an actor over 40, which is very difficult to do without any connections, even though he did have connections. But he was one of these guys, and he says, I'm a lucky guy. I was at the right place at the right time, and he parlayed it. 
and I just thought his story was very interesting. A man who, who's on The Sopranos, whose father really was with the mob, by the way. By the way, everyone listening, listening to this, a lot of folks on The Sopranos are kind of connected in very mm-hmm. <laughs> six degrees of separation. His father was a mob, was a bookie from the mob. He was never in, he never broke the law, Steve. He just grew up in that environment. So, um, And how did he get his break to? Oh, very interesting. He was doing short little films. He was doing, he, basically what happens is they have local hires in Vegas and across the country. If you know there's a film, you fly yourself out, and you're hired as a local hire, which means you're not getting the big money. They're not putting you up. They're not flying you. But if you come out here for the audition, and you're right for the role, you'll get it. So he took a lot of vacation time off to go and do, he was, he was getting the acting bug. He, you know, when something really gets you jazzed and excited, mm-hmm. he took all his vacation time from being entertainment director, and then he would zip off and audition. So he's going to New York to attend a comedian's wedding. And he tells his agent at the time, again, Steve is doing little bit pieces in movies that people have seen him in. And he says, to, you know, get me an audition for The Sopranos. I'm a big lug, big lug of an Italian guy. I'm from New York. So he gets the audition. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the director is, um, um, I forgot her name, but um, it's Christopher Walken's wife. Says, you know, who is the casting director of The Sopranos, says, mm-hmm. this is a local hire. You know, if you get hired for this role, you're going to have to, you know, live here in New York, not in Vegas. And, you know, he says, don't worry, don't worry. I'm used to this. My mother's from New York, lives here now. I'm from New York. Uh, you hire me, I'll be here. Well, he flies back to, to L- Las Vegas after having the reading with uh, our, uh, Georgina, Georgina Walken, I believe. Uh, and he gets the call on his voicemail. Hey, you got the call back. You have to fly back to New York for the call back with David Chase, the producer, who you all know is David Chase, is the producer with The Sopranos. Well, he says to his wife, you know, because now, you have to understand, Steve is a no-nonsense guy. He's getting tired of flying himself all around the country to do these auditions. He's tired mm-hmm. of it. He says to his wife, I'm not going. I'm tired of going. You know, and by the way, he used to book most of the things he got. That was a strange thing. He had an amazing success rate. He just didn't feel like getting on a plane again three days mm-hmm. later, later. His wife reads him the right act. You get back there. You got a call back for the, the you know, the, the, uh, you know, the producer of The Sopranos, you do it. So his wife laid down the law. He goes back. He gets the role. Mm-hmm. So you understand, he still has a job at the, um, mm-hmm. he still has a job. He still has a full-time job. Right. I don't know how he's pulling this off. He collected so much vacation time that he would just leave and go shoot. They, they, now, you understand, uh, Dr. Carroll, they think he lives in New York. Mm-hmm. Do, he would fly out to do a reading of the script that week. That night, he flies back to Vegas, does his job at the, at the uh, Riviera. Then when he has to sh- fly back the next week to shoot the scene, he fly out again. Hmm. For, for, for a year, they thought he lived in New York. <laughs> he lived in Vegas. This guy was zipping across the country. So, but he realized this was giving him more joy than anything. Yes. He loved being an actor. He, he, and if you, if you asked him 25 years ago when he was a bouncer at you know, all the places in Vegas, he was a guy trying to earn a buck. He didn't know. He just fell into it. Hmm. It was, and it, it, it and it, it, there's some type of passion in his life. Again, it's a difficult life, but you know, he, this guy is is a, is a celebrity now. He's got four books out on the New York Times. He has a fourth book coming out. Again, he, I thought he was a perfect person to reinvent themselves. And I wanted to know what he had to go through with his wife. His wife yeah. was very supportive. In fact, it was his wife and two kids that got him through those difficult times, working as he said at the Riviera, um, con, you know, at the Riviera Hotel, even though. They treated him very well. But as you know, Dr. Carroll, you pay a lot of money, have a lot of responsibility, have a nice title. If you're not really happy doing it, what does it mean, honestly? Right. Is it worth it? I mean, who, you know the old play, Whose Life Is It Anyway? Right. 
So that's what he decided. And then I interviewed people, other people in the book yeah. that I came across. I want to know what did, what were their dreams and their hopes when they were growing up. What, yeah. Where did they see themselves? Is this did did the map that you had for your life? Is, did it work out the way you expected? And right. I just wanted to learn from them and hopefully help other people that were kind of because, as you know, uh, as you get older, it's tough to make change. Don't you agree? Yeah. You, you get kind of scared. You say, you know, I'm miserable. I feel comfortable being miserable in this zone. Yeah, I don't want to, like, right. change something else and realize, oh, God, I should have just stayed where I was. I was happy and miserable. At least it, it, it was, it, it was. you know, I recognized it. Now I have to go into uncharted uncharted waters that I, I don't know I can do. So, But Steve kept his day job, literally, while he was shooting The Sopranos. I don't know how he did it, but he did. And yeah. he, he's no longer the entertainment director of the... Yes, I was just going to say, that he had a, at some point, I guess he gave it up. He gave it up, but he still books the comedy club there. Oh, I He can see. book it, like, on the road. He opens up a book, and he puts comics in, and he still makes money from that. But he gave up the day-to-day. No, he's a full-time celebrity, star, big-shot macha, as they say. <laughs> and did Ray Romano, I, I, I remember his friends when he... Uh... Made it big? I mean, did you ever uh, get a guest spot on No, I, I got an audition. I knew some of the writers on the show. I was up for a role on it, uh, a guest star. But at that point, I was more into the writing situation of, but Ray, Ray, that's the problem. You know, when you become a star, everybody's your friend again. Uh, Ray was very nice to read my book and give me a testimonial yes. for it. In that respect, uh-huh. I was very, but he's still, uh, what you see is what you get with Ray Romano. He still is a very nice, down-to-earth man, and I was very close with his his manager. And I talk about Ray in the book how he was very depressed. He wasn't thinking he was going to make it. And if, when people read the book, if not now, then when, you'll hear how... And he's still kind of insecure. He's still insecure with all the millions of money, he's, you know, millions of dollars he's made, and the success he has. It, it never leaves you that insecurity. But um, he was always a gracious guy and very nice, and... Uh, people that were tighter with him got roles in the show, mm-hmm. I believe. But I wasn't in that inner inner sanctum. But mm-hmm. we we you know we were reviewed on a show in New York uh, 16 years ago, and we all got good reviews. Surprisingly enough, all comics got a, a nice review in the in the New York Post, Doctor Carroll, as you know. And the reviewer picked the one act who was going to go on to stardom. She mm. picked Ray Romano. Really? She did. She knew it back then. We all knew there was something about Ray that had he had that X factor, that something special, and you all know it. Or he wouldn't. People yeah, wouldn't been watching yeah. a show for nine years. That's it's that instant likability that is uh, just it's you can't you can't fake it. He has it. So hmm. okay. And when we come back, um, maybe you could tell us another uh, some other examples of people in your book who um, who have reinvented themselves, perhaps in another in another medium. Okay. We're talking today about reinventing yourself. I hope that uh, you've been getting some ideas and asking yourself, at least starting to ask yourself the question whether you're really happy in whatever it is that you're doing. And um, it is true. Uh, as a psychiatrist, from for various things that I do, both in therapy and for expert witness work, um, when I evaluate people, as well as doing therapy, um, I will often ask, what is it that you thought you were going to be doing? What did you want to do when you were in grade school and high school? And most of the time, people do not wind up doing what it is that they dreamed of. And um, and in some instances, that's a good thing. And in other instances, they really never quite... Uh, it's always been downhill. The disappointment has been 
has made them go downhill. So this is really something important to think about. When we come back, we'll be talking more with my guest, Peter Fogel. And you've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Unlimited talk at your fingertips, voiceamerica.com. West Coast Business Review and host Amy Campbell presents Show Me the Business. Each week, you'll hear exciting guests give you vital information on advancing your business and career. Learn how others have built their empires, from best-selling authors to renowned entertainers. Listen every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific time on voiceamericaradio.com. Visit our website at www.westcoastbusinessreview.com. West Coast Business Review's Show Me the Business, connecting you to the business world. World-renowned cosmetic surgeon and scientist, Dr. Andrew G. Berman, hosts Beauty in America, broadcasting every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America channel. What is beauty? How is it viewed in a cross-cultural context? And what is the role of plastic surgery in society, careers, and life? Expert guests join Dr. Berman to discuss historic and current concepts of beauty and plastic surgery, as well as trends, advances, and gimmicks. Beauty in America with Dr. Andrew G. Berman finds out what is real and what is hype right here on the Voice America channel, Fridays at 2 p.m. Results indicate your child has neuroblastoma. There's evidence of metastasis. We need to schedule a bone we'll to perform a surgery. After you hear your child has cancer, chances are you don't hear anything else. CureSearch.org connects you to the most comprehensive research and advice on childhood cancer and to other families who know exactly what you're going through. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show... Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today with my guest, Peter Fogel, a comedian who has reinvented himself into becoming a copywriter and now a writer of a book about reinventing yourself. And I'll tell you how you can find out more about that at the end of the show. But in the meantime, Peter, why don't you give us another example of someone who you've profiled in your book as someone who has successfully reinvented themselves? Uh, his name was Lindsay Koob. Lindsay Koob, I hope I'm saying it right, Lindsay Koob is from um, Goose Creek, um, South Carolina. He was came from a large um, um, military family. Father was a colonel. And he was the firstborn. He went into the military, and, and, he, and he became, I, I think he got up to lieutenant. He was in military intelligence. He, was, he went to the Citadel. I mean, he was a real military guy, but he was also very creative, always sang in choirs, had a lovely opera singing voice. As much as he was in the military, he had a very strong classical background in prep school. I mean, this was an officer and a gentleman. Mm-hmm. And he got into military intelligence because he thought that, you know, he was expected to play sports in high school and college, even though he wasn't really into it, but he was a six-foot, strapping, 190-pound man. He did what was always expected of him, uh-huh. always helping out his father. You know, his father was the, you know, I always thought it was the great Santini. I used to kid him about it. 
Um, and he goes, no, it was close. He wasn't abusive in that way. But he, you know, when you're when you're a military family, it's like you know, get them to do push-ups. You know, it is what it is. It's it's not it's not a stretch from the great Santini. So his job, he married his college sweetheart, and he had two kids, and he was doing what he was expecting to do, even though he had such a creative side singing and opera and he knew classical music he did what was expected of him he was a, an, an you know a military man and he got into military intelligence his job was to um do security for um um civilian companies that had contracts with the military he'd always do background checks on everybody he'd find out if anybody was particular was a homosexual they do that mm-hmm. you know don't ask don't tell and it killed him to do this type of work you know Mainly, why do you think, Dr. Carroll? Well, I'm sure his father was homophobic. Yes, his father was very homophobic. Why do you think it really kind of bothered him a great deal that he had to do this? I'm not saying that's all what it was in military intelligence, but that was a good thing. He explained to me that's what he was, he was, that he had to do this type of work. And I'm sure you know the answer. Well, you're going to tell me that, that he was gay. He was gay. Okay. So he was always, he was living a lie for a great part of his, his whole life. Mm-hmm. He was trying to be what was expected of him. He had those inklings. He, he, he pushed it down. He pushed it down. Married his, you know, eventually, this was during the Reagan years, I mean, where he eventually told the marriage counselor of the site. Actually, back then, did you know, I'm sure you knew this, Dr. Carroll, but back in the 80s, the treatment for homosexuality was marry a good woman, Get it out of your system, and you'll become straight. That's that was the treatment back in the seventies and eighties. Was there was no you know there was an actual treatment for being if you had gay tendencies. I believe. Well, I'm, I mean, there were some people who some, who did it. Who did that? But that's what he was told by a shrink: marry a good okay. woman, you won't be gay, you won't right. have these gay feelings. Okay. He couldn't take it anymore. It was just eating at him, and he finally, in the middle of therapy, he tells his wife, "I am gay," and he knew at that point. His military career was completely over. Yes. And his and his marriage, and losing his two children, who the wife never forgave him to this to this day has not forgiven him for living the lie because he was he kept saying well I you know it's like I, I love you know he liked this woman it's like Will and Grace I really like mm-hmm. this woman we have so much in common mm-hmm. she's you know the, the the physical contact the sexual thing wasn't his his cup of tea but he produced two children who went into the military also by the mm. way. So there I am having a conversation with a gay grandfather on a phone on the, on July 4th weekend, and here I am, a single straight male who's not married with kids, talking to a gay grandfather, which I thought was kind of <laughs> ironic in a way. So at that point, that was his epiphany. His, basically, his life had completely started, re, was reinvented. He, uh, it was during the Reagan years when, he, um, when they were doing cutbacks in the military, and his boss, his, his um, I guess, commanding officer says, I don't care if you're gay, white, black, green, whatever, you're going to leave now. I'll hire you back at, you know, in the same thing you're doing now, but you'll be a civilian. You won't be making the money. Mm-hmm. He didn't care as commanding officer. But once they find out you're you're gay, that's it. Mm-hmm. It's pretty back then. You're it's over. Right. So, but unfortunately, when he was supposed to be hired back, they weren't hiring anymore. There he was, a man with like three degrees, three college degrees, a master's, over educated but underemployed. So he went back, he did a lot of odd jobs doing this and that, and he finally got back to doing what he loved, and that was singing. He moved to a town, took care of his... He eventually told his father. They cried. His father, his sister had an inkling. His brother didn't have any idea. He really covered up for quite a great deal because he was very machismo and macho. Um, His father accepted him because he loved his son, you know. So uh, 
and you know it was it was it was what it was. You accept your child for what it is. But he was released at this point. But now he's released in the world of being who he wants. But he's a gay, overeducated, underemployed former military intelligence right. officer. I mean, he worked at the in the Pentagon. Did odd jobs. Finally, got into back to his classical singing and moved to a town to take care of his mother that was ailing, and his, the father had died. And he started working in a um, in a musical uh, in a, a classical. Uh, music store. People would come in and he was an authority on classical music, so he became a reviewer on the internet. He was the in-house classical genius of people that wanted music. You know, learn about mm. reviews of albums. Now, he's not making a lot of money. To be perfectly honest, he'd be a lot happier if he was living above the poverty line, but the gist of the matter is he's doing what he wants. And I know he's going to be taking off in his new in his career one way or the other and I'm, I always give him hints and help how to do it so there's a man that went you know started out at something never thought he'd get back to his creative roots in music but did so I realized a lot of people in the book went back to a lot of their creative energies they had as a child yeah. it was a circle it was very much they were going back to what they were doing as children what they really wanted to do but because they were expected to do what you know they're supposed to do they went into another field, but a lot of them. Uh, it, it, well, if, if when folks read the book, hopefully they'll realize it's it's just like a circle of life. You go back to what you want to do, and they may not be the wealthiest people in the world, but they're happy. They're happy who they are. So I figure Lindsay was was happy who he is because he didn't have to live the lie anymore. And I just for some reason that story just touched me. Yeah. Uh, to live a lie for the great part of your life. I don't know how you do it. You tell me. How do you do it? How do you do it? Well, you know, the, sometimes it's just the fear of, of revealing uh, who you are and what you want. Uh, you know, sometimes it's out of fear, fear that, fear that your parents won't love you anymore. Right. Um, fear that, uh, well, certainly, you know, public humiliation or being in the military, obviously losing his job. A lot of fear is, is really what keeps people stuck in wherever they happen to have wound up and fear of not being good and you know that's part of the problem too when you're picking a a creative field you feel that there's so much competition and you're not going to be good enough compared to the other people you know when i did stand-up comedy dr carroll i was only good as my last show Mm -hmm. do you realize that you know as a major league ball player you have to be if you hit 300 you are 30 percent out of 100 successful when I am a stand-up getting the money I'm getting at the level where I'm closing the show on the headliner, I have to bat 900. Uh, you can't just, like, be up and down. You have to be consistently funny. Because they, they don't remember the great shows. They only remember the bad ones. <laughs> they, 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 they don't accentuate the positive, which was another one of the reasons I wanted to kind of, like, um, focus more on my speaking, my writing, you know, um, and doing public speaking, helping people become, you know, public speakers, as well as being a reinvention expert. So I took all my skills of being a stand-up comic and a writer and a direct mail copywriter, and I parlayed that into not just being a, you know, direct mail copywriter, but like you said, a, you know, a, I'm a reinvention expert because people asked me, after they read the book, they called me, they wrote me, can you give me ideas, can you help me, give me mm-hmm. ideas, you know, what you can do, what did you do that was, you know, how did you accomplish it in such a short time? And that's when I, you know, I started writing articles on it. So I kind of like, I didn't look to become a reinvention expert. It just happened. You know, it just came out of my past work. It it helps to be, you know, that you have reinvented yourself and you're over 40. 
you know, to be someone, well, I reinvented myself at 25. whoop de doo <laughs> that wasn't hard. You really haven't failed that much in life. Because as you get older, isn't it true, the baggage just keeps building up because you get scared. It's, it's a lot of fear. It's a lot of fear because you, you just don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, actually, as you were just talking, I was thinking about what a particularly um, difficult transition it must have been for you. I mean, even though, yes, you had been doing some writing, but just, you know, from being a, a comic where you do use the things, um, sort of um, uh, critiquing yourself, you know, make, getting the audience to laugh with you about your foibles, but about things that really still hurt, um, and then to to sort of rise above that to put yourself out there, you know, as an expert in something, not just to be a copywriter in the background, but um, to actually get out there and and uh, tell people you know, how you did it, how others did it, and, and how they can do it. And, and you know how, you know why it wasn't as hard as you might think it is? Stand-up comedy, when you can do stand-up comedy, there's not much you can't do. It, it's, it just makes you in a way that you just get above stuff. You just get through your fears quicker than what you normally, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. If you can make, if you can make 1,300 people laugh consistently, you just get that confidence. You're going, if I could do that, yes. well, I could yes. easily do that. Right. Because I, I had a gift of gab, and I'm a fairly intelligent person. Right, but that's once you got through it. I mean, you yeah. know, starting out with the neurotic comic. <laughs> yeah, the neurotic, the neurotic comic. comic. Well, well, why don't you tell people how they can um, find out more about you and about your book? Well, I invite people to go to my website at reinventyourselfnow.com, www.reinventyourselfnow.com. Uh, there they can, if, they want, if they're interested in purchasing the book, they can do so. They can also sign up for my Reinvent This e-zine. When they sign up for my Reinvent e-zine, they'll get tips, tricks, and strategies on reinventing yourself quickly and efficiently, and you'll get the, the Ultimate Reinvention Quiz e-book. I'm going to give you the ultimate, ultimate Reinvention Quiz e-book. So if you're still on the fence about reinventing yourself, this quiz book will make you ask yourself the tough questions to do it. You'll also get... Um, a, uh, uh, an MP3 recording of me on the Clear Channel Network, and you'll get a great ebook on the power of persuasion. And I guarantee you, if you're reinventing yourself into your new career, you're going to have to learn the power of persuasion <laughs> to get people to see it your way. Well, you certainly have been doing that. I think you've uh, really inspired a lot of people sitting on the fence today, and I thank you very much. My guest, Peter Fogel, he is the author of. If Not Now, Then When, Stories and Strategies of People Over 40 Who Have Successfully Reinvented Themselves. So why don't you go to his website, take his quiz. A lot of the things are free on the website, and uh, see what you think. That's ReinventYourselfNow.com. Peter, thank you very much for joining me on Dr. Carol's Couch, and thank you all for joining me. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and on VoiceAmerica.com, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.